0: Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you again this week. This is Lindsay.
1: And this is Kira.
0: And yeah, just, um, you know, happy to be back in the space. In the little virtual space with you, Kira. How are things going in your life?
1: Just fine. Everything's all right. It's been, you know, kind of crazy summer stuff and fires and whatnot. All that, you know, the fires, the floods, the usual. The uh, usual. Climate weather the that usual. we all have. <laughs>
0: it's so, the strangest like thing. It's the strangest thing, the way that these things, that that, that these events in our lives have become Routine. It's one of the things I find like I mean I I find it a little disturbing about human human you know brains that we're like oh yeah no now the, now it's just fires every year and we all sort of adapt to it you know um, I just want yeah. and I yeah environmentalists uh, historically have not had a great uh, understanding of just how easy it is for people to do that mentally speaking I mean you know to just right. say like oh. Yeah, no, now climate change is a thing, but we're just dealing with it, you know, Um, not that that's everyone, but I feel like a lot of people went through a transition uh, of denial to acceptance pretty quickly.
1: (laughs) It's interesting, too, because I used to think that when I'm like, well, well, maybe when it's really more visible people yeah. really will more, will care more and will understand more. It will seem real, you know, because it's, has it, always seemed so abstract. We've always, you know, this, this has been the big challenge. People are like, climate change seems like, you know, warming and the impacts, they seem far away, even though we knew they weren't, <laughs> they were approaching and now we're in it. And I, you know, sometimes I still feel like we're, we're in it. We're right, we're right in the middle of it. It's just, it's, you know, everyone keeps the, the joke this summer, of course, is that it's, it's not really funny at all. You know, the coldest summer we'll ever remember. fact yeah. Been the hottest, you know, on record and that's
0: just, yeah. Yeah. we're
1: right in it. And I don't know, it still doesn't quite feel immediate enough because of what you say. People do get, or people are amazingly adaptable. They can get used to a fire season in California that lasts for seven months.
0: Yeah, I do think we've improved a lot, especially the, our our colleagues in journalism, um, mm-hmm. re- realizing that part of it is that we need to not talk so separately about you know weather events and then about sort of carbon emissions and right. you know the UN and the IPCC But these things are very interconnected and um, more people have been doing that work in the past five years to make sure that um, that that uh, typical folks out in the world understand the and and are hearing about um, climate change when they hear about a hurricane you know absolutely maybe make the connections more and I I do wish we'd been doing that uh, I don't know in in the I would say mainstream environmental movement has not been great at that. Um, so it's been right. good to hear and to see some of that changing a lot, I think because of the influence of environmental justice groups, you know, that like have always, it has always been the narrative there. Right. Uh, no, it's yeah, definitely yeah.
1: true. It, it's, yeah. I, I think we're seeing, I would call that sort of a, um, there's a, connection iq that is going up and that's a good thing and it's happening you know to your point you know meteorologists and that crew and those that report on that are making those connections and making that you know making that story a more complex one and telling that rather than just Mm -hmm. Sticking with the old approach. We, I mean, we're so good. This species is so good at siloing things. We really do like things separated. (laughs) You know, it's just much simpler stories that way. But that connection IQ is kind of what we need across all the sectors, right? Like that is what will help us, you know, uh, actually address, for example, equity in buildings, because those are the what that's what we're looking for, right? Like an ability to see those connections rather than just saying, oh, I'm not dealing with equity, I'm dealing with a building. (laughs) Right. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I get so excited these days, as you know, about some of the work around um, resilience, disaster relief, um, insurance, etc. Uh, it's because when you do sort of zoom out and think about all these things as being so interconnected, the role that the buildings folks play in uh, creating a better future becomes you know, much richer and more important, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just about saving kilowatt hours, it's really about a, a, a bigger challenge that we face as a sector. But yeah, I don't think we really think about when we just think about, you know, the, I don't know, the, the specifics of carbon emissions and things like that. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you're out there dealing with some resilience issue more more with you we hope that you know everyone is staying staying sheltered as far yes. as we can
1: yes exactly
0: yeah uh yeah yeah that is what's going on this week i think it feels like that anyway i know a lot of folks who ha- are in some phase of evacuation uh it's just yeah it's a crazy thing That this has just become a part of our lives like oh where do you evacuate to you know like what a weird weird yeah disturbing heartbreaking thing um but out here in the west that is a topic of conversation Uh, yep that's where we are um but you know happy to be here with you kira and thanks and yeah
1: you know (laughs) and we have a very exciting guest with us today
0: Yes, yes, we do. Um, We're so fortunate to have Catherine Wright with us. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being with us. So, um, Catherine, for those of you who do not know, uh, she works with the Urban Sustainability Directors Network as its program director for building energy, supporting uh, U.S. and Canadian cities, with decarbonization, climate justice and resilience. She also serves on the board of directors for the New Buildings Institute and the advisory board for the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. And in her spare time, Catherine is an active violinist, yogi and dancer, which I hope we get to hear more about. All of that sounds oh so delightful in every way. Um, but Catherine, before we um, get to ask you about dancing, we want to hear a little bit about your career path. So, can you tell us about how you got started working with buildings and cities and uh, why you got involved? Anything about your path?
2: Sure, I'm happy to share. Um, I definitely didn't start out being interested in buildings and c- cities, I uh, had a less than traditional path. Um, I was always interested in nature and the outdoors. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And for those who are from Atlanta, I will concede it was Decatur and not the city of Atlanta, but um, we had quite a big backyard. I spent a lot of time playing um, in a a creek. Um, And over time, as I get older, my parents became more aware that that was not safe to do, thanks to a lot of water quality testing data that came in, our entire neighborhood and part of the county were, I think at one point declared a Superfund site. So definitely not something I should have been doing, but it definitely piqued my interest in more ecology and environmental science issues. So I ended up doing uh, my undergraduate work at the University of Pittsburgh in um, ecology and marketing, more on the research side. So I was doing a lot of um, scientific uh, process in both the ecology and the marketing side of the work I was doing. And I ended up uh, doing quite a bit of field work. Um, and I actually ended up in doing field work in Costa Rica and um, in, in the rainforest. And while that was very rewarding, I learned something important about myself, which was that um, I really enjoyed working with people. Um, and I really didn't enjoy getting drenched under a tarp trying to uh, record, record measurements. Um, so <laughs> it really led me to rethink my overall career path. Um, So I ended up going to Yale, uh, where I studied industrial ecology, which is applying the same science that you learn um, in ecology and ecosystem science, but you start thinking about human-based systems, so cities, uh, how energy flows through uh, corporations and organizations, um, and a lot of it is really focused on energy and waste. Um, I took my first job at the, it was a joint project between the Connecticut Green Bank and Yale and it was designed to help local governments in Connecticut uh, think about solar and energy efficiency um, and how to increase uh, both within their uh, jurisdictions. And um, that was really my first exposure to working really closely with cities. And I sort of really appreciated the power and the connection that local governments had with their residents um, and also um, the impact that they could have. Um, I was then basically uh, hired by a group called, at the time, Meister Consultants Group. Um, And I would say while I was starting to have this interest in energy, um, I hadn't quite... Uh, figured out my fit yet and what they were known for and a technique that they had basically brought over from Germany was this idea of doing deep Community dialogues about topics that I think. Um, seemed way too technical for a lot of uh, people in the companies in the US to have tackled so they basically got their start. Uh, doing community dialogues around siting of major renewable energy projects. So they would work with the community to make decisions about where things should go, sort of based on um, potential impact and also benefits. And so those are the same. Uh, that was sort of the way I was learned how to do stakeholder and community dialogue and facilitation, and also the philosophy with, that we tried to bring to all of our work with local governments in the U.S., um, so we did quite a lot of work um, at the time with communities in Massachusetts, thinking really deeply about um, energy planning and what a sustainable future looked like with city staff, as well as local residents. Um, and then over time, I think just as the climate science came more clear, and I think this movement of cities and climate action um, sort of shifted, I think there was a recognition of the of some of the areas where cities actually have more direct control, and then areas where they needed to collaborate together or collaborate with others to sort of make influence and influence things happening at the state level. One of the areas where cities were still spending a lot of their time locally was around buildings. So over time, a lot of the Energy planning work was beginning to focus on things like benchmarking policies and trying to make information more transparent to sort of residents, businesses, and community members about what energy use looked like in their communities and how people sort of could make, use that public information um, to improve their buildings. And over time, the policies grew more advanced and people um, sort of became interested in like how to drive even further energy efficiency savings and emission reductions, but I was sort of became very involved in that work on the energy side, and then over time as the resilience conversation began to emerge on the resilience side as well. um, I now work for the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, so many of the cities that I work with over the years were members of this large network where they all work together to think about issues related to sustainability and climate and joined usdn about a year a year and a half ago to be their program director for all of our buildings work so um it's been a a pretty crazy journey um from uh thinking that i was going to be studying uh, bats in the rainforest to to helping cities but um i've I've enjoyed the ride yeah it sounds
0: like an amazing ride Um... It's funny. I was, when I was thinking about your fieldwork in Costa Rica. It's anytime someone says that, I'm like, "Oh, that sounds so cool. Why didn't I do that?" And then hearing, hearing you decide, like, "Oh, actually, it rains a lot there." I'm
2: like, "Oh, yeah, okay."
1: It's probably uh, one of those things that it's actually cooler to have done it. Yeah, <laughs> it's,
2: it's definitely cooler to have have done it. I, I I remember I went out into the back into the city to with a couple of other people to resupply we tried to go back to our site and it was raining it was like basically had switched from the wet to dry season over like overnight and that day we were gone and basically the path that we took had basically turned into a river it was like oh how do we get back to <laughs> how do we get back to our cabin uh so it was it was wild even yeah. basic things were <laughs> very hard <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah,
0: learning experience. Um, Also, I had no idea you were from Decatur, and I am also from Decatur, and I feel like we're going to have to talk about that not in front of all of our podcast listeners, but um, yeah, that's um, a wonderful thing to have learned about you. Go Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah, totally. Okay, so So you yeah, this is cool. And I love the path. Actually, I think it's really interesting to think about sort of industrial ecology taking you into these questions of like green banks and then into cities and all of the things you've been doing there. So, um, you know, we've now had a handful of guests on the show who have talked about um, USDN specifically, who are coming at the the problems that we all engage in from the angle of local government. And you probably know more people now that work in that sphere than most. So one question we wanted to ask you is what you would like people to know about the realm of local government work and what you see anyway as the, you know, critical interest areas, skill sets, et cetera, people, Uh, Should have if they want to get into working in local government?
2: Local government work, in my opinion, I think is extremely rewarding um, because you really have a chance to sort of form connections. And in the case, especially if you are living in the city or county where you work, you really sort of get to see some of that play out on the ground over time. Um, I worked. I have worked with the city of Boston on climate change issues, I think going on almost 10 years now and it's just been really rewarding to see the growth over time Um, to succeed sustainability is an interdisciplinary practice and field and accordingly, a lot of the sort of responsibilities and the sort of authority to take action are distributed throughout a local government. So a skill that I noticed that a lot of our members have is they're really great at relationship building and working with other departments, um, especially the cities that have been really successful. They've really been able to uh, build a lot of bridges. I also think that, you know, there's a set of traditional skills like data analysis and and mapping and GIS that can be can be helpful and I think are great foundations but I really think that clear communication skills um, are especially important, not just for those interdepartmental dialogues that I mentioned, but also for being able to um, do effective resident and stakeholder engagement. A lot of our members that are sustainability departments are regularly in dialogue with members of their business community about policies that they're planning. They're regularly in dialogue also with um, just residents um, as well about some of the changes that they're observing um, in their community based on sort of on climate change, development, and other factors. So um, being able to really be comfortable and be able to build relationships with all of those different audiences is a really crucial part of local government work.
1: That's awesome, Catherine. Um, And I I love hearing you talk about that. It does really sound also like so diverse of, a, of a experience, just having those jobs, you know, all those different relationships and all those different layers to it. It makes me question my career path, which I do on a regular basis in these conversations, I will say. Um, I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit more about your current role and maybe give us a little sense about what USDN really is, sort of its scope and how it came about, things like that.
2: Sure. So USDN, which is the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, started um, back in 2008. Um, So it was essentially a group of sustainability directors at the time who were really looking to try to learn from one another across the U.S. and Canada and wanted a forum to be able to share practices directly with one another, local government to local government. Um, And so it really began on that foundation of of a peer network um, to share best practices and grow the field. Um, right now, our current number count is 250 cities and counties across the U.S. and Canada, so it's grown a lot since that original, original set. Um, but it's still at its core this peer learning network for local government practitioners that are interested in um, advancing climate action equity and resilience. Um, so USDN, has organized itself um, around a series every year of learning groups. And so based on sort of the interests of our member cities, we'll stand up learning groups on particular topics. They've ranged from things like food waste, uh, to energy benchmarking, to electric vehicles. Um, We also have groups of cities that are all actively trying to sort of pass policies or programs, and they're organized into action groups. So instead of just learning about a topic, they're really trying to uh, work together to sort of figure out the best ways to move things forward. And then we also have um, special projects where we might uh, do more in-depth work with a smaller subset of members that are really trying to move forward an innovative program or practice. Um, We also do some re-granting as well. And then every now and then there's certain opportunities that Sort of merit network wide or near network wide engagement. Um, So, for instance, we were very involved in the national building energy code process for 2021 because that was one of the things that actually had the ability to touch almost all of our members. It doesn't directly impact, didn't directly impact our Canadian members, but it, it certainly impacted all of the US ones. So, it was really an opportunity for us to work together as an entire network. Um, so there are sometimes um, those opportunities where um, we there's network-wide action as well. So that's a little bit about the history of the organization. And so what I do at USDN is um, we have quite a bit of work uh, that we do on the built environment. So I oversee all of the learning groups, action groups, and special projects and network engagement that are related to the built environment. And I also do a lot of our uh, sort of thinking um, with partners about uh, things that we might want to do next. So, uh, of late, uh, since we have a administration uh, at the federal level that's sort of very interested in um, climate change uh, and energy issues in the built environment, that's included a lot of agency engagement too of late, uh, which is which is actually exciting. I'm, I'm glad to see uh, more federal interest in this topic.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's very exciting. Um, and I'm such a believer in the power of networks um, in this way, like both working together, but also learning from one another and being able to sort of share that knowledge and really um, just leverage it all, all over. That's that's really interesting. So is there a project I'm wondering if that you're working on right now that you'd like listeners to
2: know about? Uh, yes, there's... One in particular, but to talk about it, I'd actually like to take a little bit of a step back Um, and just to say that USDN is a network organization and networks are constantly learning and evolving. Um, So a few years ago, USDN defined a set of What we called high impact practices. So those were practices based on what we'd seen across all of our 250 member cities that we thought really moved the needle on climate mitigation. Um, But that initial our initial stab at that, I would say didn't reflect all of the emerging work and thinking on how mitigation, resilience, and equity actually nest together. Um, so we worked with our members and we took another shot at that um, and released a new version of our high impact practices. And those, we really view those now as the priorities that we think about in all of our programming uh, to help members take action to advance equity, greenhouse gas reduction resilience at the same time. Um, and so part of redefining what we meant by impacts um, included uh, lifting up practices that we consider to be foundational, like working working in an interdisciplinary manner, um, working directly with community and trying to shift power and share power with community um, where that's possible, um, as sort of key to anything that we do, regardless of the topic area. Um, Buildings work remains critical to the network. So we also redefined a high-impact practice around buildings, which is focusing on Catalyzing the construction and retrofit of healthy, resilient, and zero carbon buildings. And then a part of that is really thinking about energy burden and affordability and anti-displacement. And so these are new ideas that, at least the formalization of these ideas and having them being written down as sort of what the network was about was, was new for us. And it was also like, quite frankly, a different way Uh, to try to center people and have a more people-oriented approach to trying to think about the built environment. And I think USDN, like a lot of the field, um, wasn't really approaching thinking about buildings that way. Um, It was, you know, much more of a traditional climate action planning-based approach where you looked at the emissions, you looked at where most of the emissions were coming from, and then you were oriented around technical or policy solutions. Um, So this is really a different way of framing it. So this led us to develop uh, the Equity in Buildings Framework, um, which is available publicly and online. And it was really a guide that we developed to try and help practitioners think about how to approach uh, the question of the built environment in a more holistic, Um, and people-centered way. Um, And really think about how to have dialogues directly with community-based organizations and community members to inform how uh, future policies and programs in the built environment were developed. And so this this framework was meant to serve as our grounding uh, foundation in how we were going to think about our building's programming going forward in alignment with the high impact practices. Um, We developed the framework. I'm here talking about it, but there's a team of about 20 amazing people uh, from across the country who worked on it with us, who also realized that there was this gap um, in the field. Like there's quite a bit of publications around how to have a strong community engagement process. And then some people were doing some thinking around how to think about social equity in very specific policies. Um, But there sort of wasn't uh, anywhere that sort of took a step back to sort of think about to how to start a process of approaching, thinking about building policies and programs in a more holistic way. Um, So we worked with a set of our members who we consider to be leading on these issues, as well as community-based organizations and national nonprofits from every region of the US and our Canadian members to sort of pull together this framework, um, and sort of try to guide um, what we hope would be a dialogue about how uh, the field of practice can evolve and emerge. So um, the website is is public. Um, We are working um, over the next six months or so in trying to make more of the materials from a workshop series that we did with cities alongside Uh, the publication available to everyone. So um, hopefully more will be public facing soon, but I am hopeful that the framework will be um, a helpful tool for anyone who's really starting to think about these issues of building an equity for the first time.
1: Catherine, I love the, the framework. I'm such a fan. And I do think it is already having that impact. I mean, it is, I can say from experience that it's being used as a resource by multiple other groups that are trying to um, make sure that they're addressing this topic in an appropriate and thorough, meaningful way. And and there's a lot of folks looking at this right now, so it could not be more timely. Um, I commend you on on the timing and getting that together with such rich content, and also just even the way that it was packaged. Because there's like there's like a report, but there's also just a sort of very digestible, shorter piece. That's it's just really amazing. It's great work. Um, and I wondered if you could talk. Just as related to that it has a little bit to do with sort of some of that framework, but also really I'm curious about this question of, you know, the role of local government, um, sort of versus state and federal right like around. I mean really it could be anything but including equity and in buildings like if you could talk a little bit about
2: that that would be helpful. Sure. I guess. I guess starting from the equity and buildings perspective, uh, there is a unique role that local governments are able to play versus the state or federal government in being able to start a dialogue and understand some of their local needs. Um, a lot of uh, local government departments have more experience uh, with um, community engagement than some of the state energy offices do, uh, do just because they have are over. Um, Larger jurisdictions of people and just haven't been able to do some of that in depth work in this in the same way so that that's one piece on the on why we like to focus on local governments. Um, the second piece is that local governments really do have a pretty unique role in shaping what the built environment uh, looks like. Um, So there's a study by C40, I believe it's called Powering Climate Action, and they were looking at the emitting sectors of the economy, and they were trying to understand what local governments actually had control over, and they said 70% of local governments had the ability to set or own policies related to energy efficiency, and energy efficiency in that particular report was a proxy for the built environment. Um, and then on top of that, in the many cases, local governments also have a pretty substantial real estate portfolio, which they also directly control. Um, so if you're looking, if you're thinking about like where can local governments have impact, like they often zero in on the built environment and like to think about it from like a uh, policy perspective, um, local governments touch existing buildings when they have to go in and do an inspection um, and leading governments are thinking about how to incorporate Uh, health and energy efficiency when they sort of touch um, existing buildings at their their inspection points. Uh, They're involved with permitting of existing buildings. With new construction, um, they have zoning and planning authority, which means they can decide what types of buildings go where and also do long-term planning about what certain neighborhoods can look like. Um, and they also in some cases have more specific development regulations. So that's a whole lot of different tools that local governments have to actually touch the built environment and, and shape where people live. Um, and and then in addition, some cities and counties, depending on where you are in the country, also have direct control over their, their building and energy codes, uh, which also touch new construction. So Um, local governments have a lot of tools that could be used, um, to help, uh, with the climate transition and energy transition. And because they have so many tools, it's really important that, um, a lot of the same types of mistakes, um, from the past are not repeated as we go through this process of trying to go through this decarbonization transition. Like we want to see that that transition is just so like, for example, um, Zoning uh, was exclusionary, which means that uh, it was sort of historically used to prevent the development of certain types of housing in parts of cities. Now, many cities are moving towards inclusionary zoning practices, which encourage the creation and preservation of affordable housing, Um, but like these tools Um, can be tools for justice and can be tools for equity um, if you have an intentionality um, behind uh, government processes, programs, and work is done directly with um, community.
1: Which is a perfect segue to my next question, actually, because i it's it really seems like usDn is is it functions as a bridge between cities and community based organizations around these important topics. Can you talk a little bit about why that bridge
2: is important? I would say we're trying we're trying to be um, like i said we're're we're, we're always learning and adapting and and trying to get better um, so usDn we ultimately believe that, pol- believe that policies and programs will be better and more impactful if they are in directly, a direct alignment with community needs um, and their priorities and their voices. And that's become more and more clear as we are trying to sort of move forward into thinking about Uh, what deep decarbonization looks like that that needs to be done um, in alignment with community because cities can't sort of implement these changes alone. um, It requires partnership between an entire community in order to um, successfully mitigate and adapt to climate change. I think we all recognize um, just as climate impacts have gotten more severe that we all have a part to play in the puzzle. Um, And so because of that, um, we've seen the need um, for shifting from traditional um, community engagement processes, which often can just be a public comment period and not really a time for substantial dialogue um, to change. And so uh, we've had a number of different projects where um, our members have been able to work Um, sometimes over several years in partnership with community-based organizations um, that are interested in trying to think about what are the, how to achieve co-equal goals of climate mitigation um, and social equity. Um, So because we've had um, those projects um, at this point, going back almost four years now, and we've also been funding a series of rapid response grants um, uh, since COVID, to really encourage uh, community-based organizations and cities to experiment with what working together looks like, I think we've become uh, we've become this this bridge, sort of, just by um, some of our programming. But I think there are other organizations that are also um, really trying to figure out how can uh, cities shift and share power with community-based organizations, and some of those include climate innovations. Um, and Race Forward are also sort of doing excellent work um, in this in this sphere. Um, and just to give you an example of sort of what some of these partnerships can look like, um, one of our members worked with us through a project called Zero Cities um, in Portland, Oregon, and they very much flipped the script on its head. Instead of approaching their community-based organization that was their partner, it's an organization named Verde, with a sort of policy idea or project or program of like where the city wanted to go next on buildings. Um, It took a lot of buy-in and work um, uh, institutionally at the city but they essentially approached the community-based organization with a a blank slate. it's like, we know we need to take a next step in our climate action planning and how we're approaching the built environment. And we want to work together with you to refine what makes sense uh, for uh, moving Portland forward no policy idea or plan, they started there. That is a huge shift from how um, policy uh, development has traditionally been done. And they had a series of community dialogues and um, conversations uh, with many other uh, local organizations to sort of understand uh, what some of the major challenges um, within Portland's built environment were together, and then also to think really clearly about, like, what the policy agenda for Um, the built environment in Portland looked like Um, and at the time the city was thinking uh, about a policy that was going to be targeting some of their large commercial buildings um, because traditionally that's the biggest greenhouse gas uh, wedge if you look at a a diagram Um, but what the community was saying they really needed was that a lot of the rental housing and smaller buildings had really been left behind had been experiencing cycles of disinvestment and uh, people wanted to see higher standards and performance targets for rental housing. And they really wanted uh, a dialogue to begin to start co-developing a policy together there. Um, and so that's currently what um, Portland and its partners are working on. And um, the city would not have gotten there uh, if if they hadn't taken uh, this more uh, community-centered approach. That
0: is super inspiring it's just also really it because I guess it speaks to process you know like the intentions and the importance of taking process seriously and not treating it as a means to an end Um, it feels like they had a really uh, thoughtful process there Uh, but then also to hear like how it shifted attention away from you know big commercial buildings I just uh, yeah, um that's such a, it's such a classic example of the unconscious bias of our work uh, that has happened in buildings and sustainability over the past couple of decades that we tend to look at a pie chart and say like, oh, here's a big wedge. Let's focus on that um, rather than starting with a better question, you know, and a better group of people um, that can help a city like Portland get to, you know um, a future state that that is, yeah, healthier for everyone. So, thank you. That is amazing, and it, um, it's it's probably a good tee up for us to talk a little bit more about your attitudes towards um this larger community of people working on buildings and cities and sustainability. And uh, I, I'm curious whether you think of yourself as a part of a movement, um, or how do you situate yourself? you know, as you're working with community-based organizations and, um, governments and all these things, like how, how do you identify? Is it, is it a movement for you or no?
2: I do think it's a movement. Um, I do think we should, as a field, allow community-based organizations and BIPOC-led organizations to be and take, uh, center stage and more of a leadership role. Um, but I, I, I and I say that because I recognize that I represent uh, a network of local governments, and I think that there's an important role um, of really centering community priorities. Um, but we're all striving for a just transition. Um, and to combat climate change. And if we look at the history of the built environment in North America, it's built on unjust principles. And so we have to work together as a network of professionals and practitioners to keep that history from repeating itself as we are about to hopefully uh, drive a lot of additional investment into the built environment in order to get to the greenhouse gas mitigation goals that we want. Um, and so I view myself as, as part of that movement, and I also think that um, the this network of sustainability practitioners um, by working on these issues is also part of this movement as well, and um, I think that it, we've been very fortunate that a lot of our members have been able to basically spin out coalitions that have been able to drive local action and change. So we had a set of members that were in the PJM territory, which is a uh, particular interconnection on the electricity grid. It covers Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. And they were interested in seeing uh, more changes that would allow for energy efficiency, renewables, demand side management. Um, programs to be accessible to everyone in the region and so they formed a coalition and they engaged at that level Um, and that's a new way in which um, cities and practitioners are trying to use their collective power to have influence on these larger processes that are going to be necessary for us um, to have um, a just transition in the future that we want to see
0: yeah yeah it's it's incredibly powerful to hear just yeah those examples of as you said u s d n can serve as a convener of people, but then the question of how these people kind of um you know choose to rally together in various issues um uh, to me yeah it feels very much like uh you know one of the functions that is needed in a movement and uh, so that's that's cool here um so, as it relates to this movement, uh, however we define it, um can you talk about where you thought we would be at this point in the year twenty twenty one if you had um, visions of the future uh, you know ha- both, you know however many years ago and and where you think um we need to be putting more of our focus in terms of you know um areas of the work that we have had less progress or more progress you know how do you think we're
2: doing so far I wish we were doing better honestly (laughs) I I feel like we knew technologically what we needed to do a decade ago if not sooner and a lot of the technologies were there they were present and we could have um we were in a position to start understanding what implementation looks like. And I feel like we are still in many cases locked in these cycles of, of planning and measurement. And that like local climate action like looks very similar to what it looked like when it was originally conceived in terms of greenhouse gas inventories and climate action planning and then often additional planning. Um, and I, I guess I just hope that we would, at this point, be funding more implementation and funding more uh, local projects, uh, be they uh, city-led or community-based organization-led. Um, so that's um, that, that's sort of my thinking, and there's a lot a lot of organizations that are actually, uh, I think, feeling the same way. Uh, there's Um, a report that was recently put out by CityScale that was sort of talking about some of the stagnation that has occurred in climate action planning and the amount of sort of staff resources and time that are sort of being dedicated towards um, these sort of measurement and verification processes rather than implementation. And when you have local governments that are traditionally capacity constrained, that can be a real challenge because it can mean that the a city isn't really able to dedicate the staff time to work on implementation and work on on getting things done um, so th- that's uh, that that's um sort of where i how where i hope we can go is that there's more sort of funding and support for the implementation of projects and that there's uh more flexibility and recognition um of the role that Um, partnerships between cities and community-based organizations can play in really um, changing and re-envisioning what climate action looks like and what impactful policies look like.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. It's such an interesting trend Um, when you think about sustainability roles across the broader um, profession. I feel like, I don't know if we've had anyone on the podcast talk about this, but Corporate sustainability has experienced something similar where basically the corporate sustainability people have oftentimes just gotten stuck making annual sustainability reports with most of their time. And then we have like the sort of earlier thing that happened where a lot of people in the sustainability realm with buildings were basically just doing lead consulting and scorecards and filling out the paperwork. And it, it's just, it is really fascinating to think about how we went through this phase it really lasted too long and that has been has, has held us back where we felt like everything just needed to be documented so well uh that no one ever got to do the work <laughs> you know all the calculations all the predictions all of the reporting um so i'm i'm sad but also not surprised to hear that that's something that has been a a trend um for cities and i'm excited for um some of the ideas that you're thinking about there um, that's it's 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 cool i feel like a, a bigger piece could be written you know like in grist about the ways in which planning and measurement have have uh, slowed us down and you know like how do we reckon with that how do we how do we deal with that at a at a broader um you know
2: industry scale
0: you know what i mean
2: yeah, I, I definitely hear you. Uh, hopefully, so if someone has, if some listener has the power to get Grist to look at the city scale report and they want to uh, write up an article, I think it would do a lot of good.
0: Yeah, all right. Anyone that knows anyone at Grist? Um, I actually, maybe I do. Uh, I understand that they're uh, tenants in the building that, we, that, my, um, that ILFI is in. So uh, if you're listening, Grist, We've got our eye on you. Awesome. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. Well, uh, with that shout out, um, we have to wrap up. And Catherine, we have one last question that we like to ask our guests. And I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about who you're most inspired by these days in terms of leaders, anyone that you come across in any walk of life.
2: Yeah, over the... Past year and a half, I've had the pleasure, joy, and honor of working with the team over at Emerald Cities Collaborative, um, in particularly particular, excuse me, Avni Jamdar and Denise Fairchild. Um, They're just doing amazing work. Um, Emerald Cities is does work in a couple of cities across the U.S. Really focused on. environmental justice and the climate movement. And they have a particular focus on thinking about the labor transition and how to actually bring high road and meaningful jobs to uh, communities of color and really how to center that within the climate conversation. And workforce development and economic inclusion was an area where I particularly just didn't have a lot of background. And I feel like I've learned so much from them and they've just gotten incredible momentum over the past year. Um, and are really sort of lending their voice um, into how to sort of change how the field thinks about workforce development, economic inclusion, and also really trying to push um, cities and the federal government to sort of think about that as really central and core to their uh, climate and building strategies. So I love them a lot, and I think everyone should uh, follow their work if they're not already.
0: Yay, that is a wonderful one. And also uh, an inspiration for potentially getting them on the podcast sometime to talk more about it. Because yeah, I think that uh, that would be fun. Um, Well, thank you, Catherine. That is inspiring. And thanks just for being with us. It's wonderful to have you. I've been looking forward to getting you on the show
2: for such a long time. And uh, we just really appreciate it. Thank you all for having me and uh, for this podcast, I started listening to some episodes after you invited me and it's it's a great resource, I think, for the field. So thank you so much.
0: Oh, well, thank you. That means a lot. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, we, 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 we hope we're at least just giving space for the kinds of conversations like the things you brought up today. So um, thank you for that. And Kira,
1: sending you hugs as always. Thank you. It's been great to have you on, Catherine. Thanks so much. This is a really interesting conversation. And yeah, uh,
0: that is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. And that's what we want is for people to find us so we can all be in this dialogue together. So uh, in the meantime, stay safe and we'll see you next time.